with me, Kristen Ralph Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We're so, 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 so glad you're joining us because we have such an important show for you today. We start out talking with Dr. David Johns of the National Black Justice Coalition. Then we dive in with Shauna Thomas of Ultraviolet, move on with Amara Jones of Translash Media, and close the show with Gina Krauss-Vilmer of Upwardly Global. It is a fantastic show with education, with action, and with ways for you to make a change right from where you are while you're listening. We're going to jump right in with our first guest. We are so incredibly lucky to have Dr. David Johns, Executive Director of the National Black Justice Coalition, joining us right now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be having this conversation with you. I am even more excited and to center and ground this conversation and to start out with an answer to a question that I know everybody's going to have, which is how can I get involved in the National Black Justice Coalition and how can I support? Can you sort of share a little bit about the National Black Justice Coalition and how people can get involved and support? Because you are going to want to people after you hear the rest of this show. No pressure. And I should absolutely be able to do all of that. <laughs> Um, NUJC or the National Black Justice Coalition, this December, on December 8th, will be a 20-year-old civil rights organization focused on public policy um, at the intersections of racial equity and LGBTQIA plus equality. Uh, what we know is that um, as long as there have been people generally, um, and more specifically, as long as there have been Black people acknowledging that everything originated in Africa, uh, we've been beautifully and incredibly diverse before the terms lesbian and gay existed. We showed up occupying waves of being that are now associated with LGBTQIA+, or what it means to talk about people who are gender expansive in lots of different iterations and forms. Uh, we also really understand the teachings of Black feminists, folks like Fannie Lou Hamer, who taught us that none of us are free unless and until all of us are free. Um, so our work is really focused on reminding anyone who purports to care about public policy, who purports to care about Black people specifically, um, that they are required to honor uh, intersectionality theory, which has become a dirty word uh, and is important for us when we think about our political climate and opportunities to get closer to freedom uh, to ensure that we're increasing opportunities and outcomes for Black, LGBTQIA+, and same-gender-loving people. Um, footnote here before I answer the final question about how people can get involved is, I just introduced a term I imagine to some same-gender-loving. Um, I don't use a term gay. Um, I don't use gay because gay is often a white male political identifier and things that are associated with or that are conjured in the minds of people when they think about gay things are not priorities for me as someone who was unapologetically clear about being an African descendant, descendant rather, and a Black man who also is clear about being same gender loving. Um, I'm also a lover of language. Uh, one of my undergraduate degrees is in English. Um, and I, it is not lost on me that when when people think about or hear the word gay, um, often they conjure up images around deviancy or sex, uh, maybe even more specifically HIV. Um, and I celebrate using a term that has the word love in it, um, which is often offered up as the solution to um, the seemingly intractable problems that um, those of us who have skin that's been kissed by the sun or are otherwise challenged by policies that have been created to uphold white supremacy um, suffer under. Um, the first part of your question is how people can get involved and or otherwise support our mission. 
um, uh, you should visit our website at bjc.org. My hope is that you will find a resource at a minimum, a resource, but resources, hopefully, that will help you increase your competence um, and demonstrate more compassion for people with multiple marginalized identities. Um, and I want to encourage everyone to really think about doing work wherever you are. Um, so if that's interrogating why you should honor and respect pronouns, that's a really important part of this work. If you know a young person who identifies as um, LGBTQIA+, um, are questioning, the CDC says the vast majority of public school students now more than ever identifies anything other than strictly heterosexual, um, then hold space for them. Um, to answer questions for yourself as they answer questions about their own development. Um, there are really things that um, often we um, are not mindful of that are important in day-to-day -day interactions um, that go a really long way with regard to creating safe and supportive environments for members of our beautifully diverse community. Thank you. I'm signing up. I'm supporting. I'm staying involved. <laughs> I'm loving all that you're saying, and I'm extra loving, same gender loving. What a beautiful, beautiful way to phrase the word. As somebody who wrote a book one time, a long time ago, called The F Word, Feminism okay. and Jeopardy, about how the many ways that the actual word feminism was interpreted that have nothing to do with the actual dictionary definition of feminism. Yeah. <laughs> I love same gender loving with extra love. So thank, thank you. you. The credit does not belong with me. It belongs with Cleo Monago, a brilliant mentor and um, leader of Black Men's Exchange. Um, but yes, thank you for all of that. Yeah. So you you mentioned kids and parents <laughs> and what's happening in schools. And that is a big deal. There is an attack on love, an attack on education, an attack on being able to learn and hear the stories of our community around us, an attack on being able to see the full humanity of people in the same room with us, an attack on types of families, a full on attack. It is hateful. It is harmful. What is your advice to parents who are listening right now or to anybody who's ever had a parent in this critical time in history? Yeah, I appreciate the question. And I first want people to know that I approach this question not as a parent, but and but as an educator, um, as an uncle, um, as someone who believes in the teachings of sociologist Asa Hilliard, who said, I've never met a child who's not a genius and there's no secret to how we support them. We first acknowledge them as human and then we second support them with love. Um, so again, I appreciate you centering love. Um, three things that I think are important in this moment. One, I grabbed a book. Um, I'm often guided by our my ancestors. I grabbed a book um, called Teaching Critical Thinking, Practical Wisdom, written by Bell Hooks, lowercase yes. b, lowercase h, one of those feminists, uh, Black feminists uh, that I know you know of. And in this book, uh, Bell Hooks writes um, that there is little public discourse today about the nature of democracy. Nowadays, most simply assume that living in a democratic society is their birthright. They do not believe that they must work to maintain democracy. Later in the same paragraph, um, the Hooks continues, um, they do not read John Dewey. They do not know his powerful declaration that, quote, democracy has to be born anew in each generation and education is its midwife, end quote. I say that um, to be clear and and also naming that not only am I an educator, I'm a researcher, I'm a sociologist, I earned my PhD um, in this very space, understanding that schools, public schools in particular, are required for the functioning and recreation of our very young and very fragile democracy, um, which is why it is the site of contestation for people who are focused on 
weakening democracy. Um, it's why people are focused on schools with the desire to weaken democracy. And the result of this is that we've seen in the this last year alone, 2023, the state legislative cycle um, has been the worst year on record for anti-LGBTQ legislation. Nearly 600 bills were introduced across 41 states. More than 220 of these bills explicitly target trans people. Nearly 100, the exact number of 76 last count of these bills have been signed into law. Um, that was of June of 2023. Um, and that's more than any year on record and more than double over last year. Um, what I really struggle with is um, two things. One, as I said before, quoting Asa Hilliard, kids don't ask to be born. Uh, beyond that, they don't even have a role in participating in the political process that targets and at present is tormenting and terrorizing them to no fault of their own. So many people don't appreciate that students who are assumed to be because, again, I started by saying I don't even like gay, although I know there's some people who might listen to this and be like, that gay boy was speaking good. Hopefully that's what they'll say. Um, but it's often the case that like kids don't even find comfort in these categories that some adults don't even use to identify their lived experience. And so kids who are perceived to be members of the LGBTQIA community do not have the same rights and protections as their peers in public schools that they are forced to go to by law. And I really fear that there are some people who are protected by their privilege who've never really had to think about why pronouns matter, what it means to be a member of a minoritized community, um, to be the target of a, a politician's animus, um, to be a student in North Carolina and hear the Lieutenant Governor stand in the pulpit of a church and call you garbage, to have a failed history teacher, uh, now governor of Florida, attempt to erase critical parts of your history and ways of being, um, it is a lie that sticks and stones may break bones, but yes. words don't matter. Words actually matter. And, and, and what we know is that the mental health crisis that is gripping America has a stronghold on our children. The suicide rate for Black youth have doubled in the last two decades. That's before the most recent pandemic inspired by the novel coronavirus. We have yet to have conversations I believe as a country about the implications of denying children experiences that are so in integral to development and, and lifetime line, socialists call them life markers, things like prom and graduation. And what we know is that there's a correlation between the increase and proliferation of these bills, the rhetoric associated with them, and a decline in the mental health and well-being of our children. And for anyone who um, feels like I might be being dramatic in this moment, introducing legislation um, that is quite frankly, not the business of politicians who are not physicians, who have not taken a Hippocratic oath, who know nothing about health, our well-being, our science, let alone science for sexual minority communities, is tantamount to genocide. Denying people access to life-saving and life-affirming care is tantamount to genocide. And my hope is that, again, those of us who um, are, are, have been required to continue to live under these 
increasingly toxic constraints, know this well. My hope is that those who are protected by privilege are woke. Uh, and by that, I mean that not only are you aware of what I'm saying, but as a result of it, you then are compelled to take action. We have only one minute left and you talked about in your last sentence, you know, mm -hmm. those of us who are compelled to take action and I hope everybody who was listening is compelled to take action. What would you say would be a first step for listeners out there who are listening are like, yes, I'm here, I'm with you, I wanna take action. What should they do? One, provide a safe space for LGBTQIA plus or questioning young people that you might know and those who aren't to ensure that you have conversations like this so that people know that um, it's important for us to celebrate our beautiful diversity. Uh, look to link arms and aims with organizations like NBJC or GLSEN um, or Family Equality or the Human Rights Campaign, organizations that are led by Black, queer, trans, and gender expansive leaders, but that are also focused on this work. Um, and really think critically about how you can do work, again, where you are, to create safe and affirming spaces where people feel comfortable inviting you in and sharing critically important parts of who they are and how they move through the world. Thank you so much for being on, Dr. David Johns with National Black Justice Coalition. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for sharing your time. Thank you for helping to lift our entire country. Thank you. Thank you, my pleasure. I appreciate the time. We're gonna take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back talking with the leader of Ultraviolet about stopping hate and disinformation online so important stay with us we'll be back in a quick flash With me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined right now by a nation lifting guest, Shauna Thomas, who's CEO of Ultraviolet. Welcome, Shauna. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here with you again. I'm thrilled that you're on. Ultraviolet is moving mountains and moving change each and every day. What are the top projects that are moving right now that everyone should know about and everyone should get involved with immediately? Um, okay, thanks. So listen, if you are, you know, home for a community of feminists and you're trying to advance gender justice, you have no shortage of threats and opportunities to take on at all times. Um, but there are a few that sort of are at the top of our priority list now. Um, you know, there's, there's of course, like the, the constant sort of, um, uh, threat of abortion bans or the reality of the abortion bans that are moving. And, you know, our job is both to push back where it's possible to push back to stop those abortion bans from moving forward for being helpful where abortion is on the ballot and we can be protecting it. Um, and to be holding, you know, holding corporations accountable who are enabling these politicians or normalizing the idea that it's okay to stop women from being able to control their own bodies and get access to the health care they need. Um, so, you know, continue to push on the Biden administration and on pharmacies to um, to despite, you know, all of the lawsuits moving ahead, really make sure that they're trying to make mifepristone available to as many people as possible. And on the other side, there's the social media platforms who have to be, we have to stay on top of them every single day to make sure that they're removing the content that's telling just straight up lies, right, about what abortion is and who it impacts and um, where it's legal and where it's not. 
Um, and then there's like the just the misinformation, the malinformation, the idea that 12 week bans are a reasonable compromise, right? That 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 kind of thing, you know, doesn't violate the terms of service on a social media platform, but it is it is a very dangerous narrative. And for anyone who's been pregnant knows <laughs> that 12 week ban is incredibly radical. Um, and so that that story needs to get told everywhere, whether it's a place like North Carolina, you know, where a 12 week ban passed and they're calling it a compromise position um, or what the folks that, you know, at the federal level are talking about doing if Republicans take control fully of, you know, of 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 Congress after 2024. And so there's, you know, there's holding corporations accountable. There's making sure people have information to the, excuse me, access to the good information they need and making sure we're telling the story about the truth, about the harm that these, um, that these folks are doing um, every, you know, in all parts of the country right now and that they want to be doing nationally to impact literally everyone. Um, so that's like one category of things. And then, you know, um, on the, you know, when we think about like what the cultural obstacles are to creating the conditions for everyone to thrive for women, LGBTQ folks, people of color, like one major threat that we have been kind of working to, to disrupt is, is something some folks call the manosphere, right? That collection of sort of institutions, organizations that are, um, it's actually like a collection of a lot of different communities that have sort of a different approach, but most of them blame women for uh, the problems that men feel like they they have. Um, and they are, you know, they're they're sparking a lot of backlash to feminists. There's um, a lot of sort of documented research showing increases in threats to and actual violence towards towards women by folks who are part of these communities. And there, there are things that, and most of these, most of these narratives and most of these communities are online driven. So there are things that platforms, gaming communities, for example, could be doing to create more conditions for protecting um, the people most harmed. Um, and that includes men, by the way. Nobody, nobody is better off um, for for um, the goals and the the tactics that we're seeing coming out of the manosphere and people who lead it, like people like Andrew Tate. So we have a campaign right now to get Andrew Tate removed from Apple streaming and, and we've been successful with that. Um, so, you know, deep platforming, getting the worst folks right off the platforms, the people who are calling for harm to whole communities is, is a really important part. But so is sort of changing the terms of service and, and, and making just people aware that this is not just some vague, intractable problem in our society around sexism. There are real people behind it with a real strategy driving it. So we've got to tell that story and we've got to create on ramps for people to hold corporations accountable for enabling it. A hundred percent. And I would just want to uplift to our listeners again, Ultraviolet led the way in deplatforming Andrew Tate, who was spreading hate and harm and disinformation, getting him removed from Apple. And that was accomplished. So this deplatforming is huge. And um, you were one of the first people I remember to really sound the alarm about the toxic power of disinformation and how it was being spread across our country in micro-targeting on sub-platforms like Apple Podcasts and things like that in ways that weren't getting the scrutiny that they should. How do you feel about the changes that have happened from when you started sounding the alarm to now? Do you feel like we're gaining a sort of hold on how to fight back against this disinformation? Well, you know, it's interesting. In some ways, you know, we've, there's, you, 
we know we've made progress in terms of the public's understanding and perception of the role that the platforms have played in like in in amplifying and promoting hateful content. Um, the majority of people <laughs> believe that platforms are to blame. That's a huge kind of narrative victory. Um, and that helps put pressure on what ultimately needs to happen, which is legislators at the state level and ultimately the federal level taking their role as regulators really seriously and putting new rules in place. Their business model needs to change. Their business model, they profit from misogyny, sexism, racism. And until that business model shifts, that I don't think we're going to see, um, I don't think we're, we're going to be able to realize the vision of a safe internet. Um, on the other hand, you have Elon Musk, right? And people like him who have, um, who are, who are going after researchers, right? For exposing the harms um, and creating a culture of fear uh, that is making it increasingly difficult to tell the story about the problem. Um, and, you know, what that means is for folks like us and other people who are in it, who, you know, to, we have to keep telling that story. Um, and we, you know, we have to start working with legislators at all levels to figure out interventions that can kind of withstand the pressure and the influence of these billionaires who are controlling um, our culture and our politics in a way that is, you know, really, I mean, it's bad for individual humans and it's, it's very destructive to our democracy. Um, you know, and I, but I, I guess the other thing I would say is that when we started kind of gender disinformation, wasn't really understood as sort of its own problem. And I don't know that, um, even like, you know, uh, that people sort of in the disinformation kind of uh, community, as it were, um, were thinking about the ways in which authoritarians who were using disinformation as a strategy were really leading with misogyny and sexism as a way to appeal to a very broad cross-section of people. I mean, it's it's partly how you get like a very diverse, racially diverse community of men, right? To into a conversation, in, into a conversation about white supremacist patriarchy. You do it by blaming women, and like I think people understand that that's sort of the, uh, uh, one of the big tips of their kind of uh, recruitment spear um, is you know sowing a lot of hatred of women. And so I think just generally understanding that, taking that seriously, has made it possible for us and a lot of other organizations to do more work. Um, to pressure the platforms to do things like, for example, put misogyny into their hate speech policies. Like yep. at Reddit and TikTok, we, you know, we were able to do that. And, and, but we haven't been able to do that everywhere, which means that they're actually considering misogyny, sexism as political speech, as an opinion. Right? It's not, hatred of women is not just, an, is not an opinion. A hundred percent. Let's say this again. Hatred of women is not an opinion. That is hatred. Right. Yeah. So but it's been wild, right? Like the amount of work, time, resources it's taken to get um, people to uh, just agree with that very, very basic point. So once you're able to establish that, then you can start arguing for terms of service and um, content moderation policies, right, that um, that that can decrease at least the volume and the scale of that hateful content that makes us all less safe. And, and when we get hateful content, I just want to note for our listeners, often it's part of a political strategy to grab and garner votes because hate is twice as sticky as love in terms of people remembering it. 
Mm. cognitively. And so hate is often a tactic that the far right uses to create memorable moments where they grab votes using disinformation that is not real. And so that's happening as an actual campaign. As that actual campaign is happening, it emboldens and spreads more hate because people read it and they're like, oh, it's okay to be hateful now, right? Now I'm gonna be hateful too. I mean, it's awful. So being able to stop the volume of hate, being able to make sure that hate is not okay, misogyny is not okay in terms of use, um, is really important because it's not just stopping those instant moments of hate, it's also helping to stop that wave that emboldens hate from there. And we can see in FBI statistics about hate crimes that actual hate speech does spark hate harm in real life off the internet. And so this is important. And Ultraviolet, Shauna's not bragging enough, has done a lot of really excellent work um, with those terms of use and with things that sound kind of wonky that help stop the root of hate being able to be spread. How have you engaged the ultraviolet members in those victories so that they can like be part of stopping hate at the root? Well, so thank you. I mean, none of this would be possible without ultraviolet ultraviolet members and you know people who are participating in individual campaigns. Our main source of power is people. Um, they don't respond to us because it's ultraviolet. They respond to us because tens of thousands of people have said, this is a problem and we need you to do better. Um, and it's, you know, it's, you know, it's our job to take those concerns, to take those demands directly to the platforms and interpret them for them. Like, this is what people are experiencing. These are their stories and members will share their stories about their experiences online, about their experiences in the world, right? That are, um, that are driven by online hatred and make them understand the real real world, real life consequences of the policies, the bad policies or the insufficient policies that they have. Um, and so it's through our members' stories, it's through our members taking action, whether it's petitions or making phone calls or showing up, right, to deliver letters, um, that is the reason why we're able to be in conversation and negotiate with these platforms over how they um over how they deal with misogyny and sexism online yeah 100 percent. so how can people we have one minute left how mm -hmm. can people get involved in ultraviolet and stay involved and support ultraviolet and support stopping misogyny racism and hate in america well, so the fastest and easiest thing to do if you want to be stay on top of the campaigns that we're running and want to join those campaigns is to go to weareultraviolet.org and click the sign up button and you will be on the list. Um, we, you know, we are always like eager to be in partnership with Moms Rising. So if you're a Moms Rising member, you know, I, I hope you'll we look forward to sort of working with you in partnership on a lot of things that I'm sure we'll do together in 2024. Um, you can follow us on Twitter, um, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at Ultraviolet or We Are Ultraviolet, um, kind of depending on the on the platform. But we would, uh, yeah, we this is this is a time to be together. We have the power. It's up to us to to kind of join together and make these demands and 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 get the wins that we need to thrive. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on. Thank you for all you do. Thank you for leading ultraviolet, for leading change, for fighting misogyny and racism and for, you know, building a country where everybody can thrive. Thank you. Thank you, Kristen.
We're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back with our next guest from Translash Media, talking about the power of story, the power of narrative, the power of coming together to create real change, real long-lasting change, and build communities of love, not hate. We'll be back in just a moment. with me, Kristen Rao Finkbeiner, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined by an amazing, spectacular guest who you are going to love, love, love hearing from, Amara Jones, who is with Trans Lash Media, the founder and CEO. Welcome, Amara. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm thrilled that you're on. The last time I saw you, you were on MSNBC. We were in a green room and you were just spectacular on TV. So it's such an honor to have you on radio. I want to talk about- Banned Books Week. We just ended recently Banned Books Week, and we want to honor the freedom to seek and to express ideas and to bring together authors, readers, educators, librarians, and all lovers of books. And we want to do this knowing that studies show that actually empathy increases when we read. Reading is important. Reading gives us the stories and the experiences of people around us in ways that we don't often experience just walking through lives in our own bubbles. It's so important. So Translash Media has been instrumental in changing the narrative surrounding transgender people in the United States in a variety of ways. Can you share a little bit about how important it is to stop banning books, to open up all avenues for trans voices to be heard and to drown out that horrible, hateful, vocal minority who are seeking to do harm and to turn progress backwards? Big question, I know. What are your thoughts? I mean, two things spring to mind. I think first is that um, at at Translash, you know, we believe that centering humanity is the way that we see the value in each person and is therefore willing to accept them for who they are. And it kind of runs through everything that we do from kind of our podcasts and the films and everything online. Um, So many of the things that we do come from that standpoint. Um, And I think that it's just my own personal experience that stories are the way that we get to know ourselves and that we get to know the world around us. And that when our stories become limited, our worlds become limited and therefore our connection to other people becomes limited. And so I think that what we see in these book bans is an attempt to limit people's worlds. I mean, that's exactly it. And I think about how important books are in opening up the world to us and opening us up to new ideas and to new frontiers and inspiring us to move beyond what and who we know. I think about how, You know, this year I was fortunate enough to be on the Time 100 list and they had a big gala for everyone um, with gold-plated names that everybody would recognize. Um, You know, Steven Spielberg and Angela Bassett and the list goes on. Um, And a mixture of people who are not so well-known, but like me, but... but You are well-known. I'm in your fan club. You You have a big fan club. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. But the largest applause of the night came for Tracy Hall, who was also on the Time 100 list, 
who is the um, executive director of the American Libraries Association. The biggest applause of the night, bigger than any of the other people that I just mentioned, um, bigger than Drew Barrymore. And I think that what that speaks to is that for everyone, no matter who you are or where you come from, there is a reverence for what books can do and the power of books that exceeds even the power of celebrity, right? Even celebrities are in awe of books and the power of books um, for them. And so I think that the assault on books is an assault on, on that, is an, on our connection to the wider world because we understand that. Um, yeah. And I think that we have to underscore that it has nothing to do with protecting anybody it's everything to do with limiting people for sure limiting our freedoms limiting limiting our freedom to understand to be in the world to be full humans i mean this yeah. attack on books is something that has come up also in history that is followed by even more harmful and toxic legislative policy like the attacks on books on its own is awful, but often brings with it um, a lot of restrictions that come forward in legislation. I mean, it's not, I don't think, a coincidence that we're seeing this attack on books as we're seeing an attack on bodily autonomy, on the ability mm -hmm. for each of us to decide what to do with our bodies, when, why, and how. Like, these things are connected. Can you share a little bit about how there is so much power in our stories, so much power to move minds move our culture move our narrative move change and that the attack mm -hmm. on books is really an attack on the power of us together in our democracy yeah i mean I, th I think a couple of things i think that we have to understand about the authoritarian movement at work in the united states right now is that it is very good at using the top line which people seemingly everyone would agree to to usher in an array of policies that almost nobody wants Yes. Right. So we're protecting children. And so we're going to ban all these other things where 100 percent of people are, are for protecting children. So it's very hard to say, no, I don't want to protect children. Yeah, we all want to protect kids. But, you know, doing things that um, stifle the ability of children to learn, that stifle the ability of, of, of children to um, to be curious that stifle the ability of parents who want their kids to have access to books. I mean, we know that parental rights in this country work in only one direction, right? So, um, and so you say that you wanna protect kids, but underneath that, you will actually be limiting the ability of parents who want to ensure that their kids have access to the widest range of ideas, right? Or when they say, oh, we're protecting kids and therefore, you know, we're going to ban the ability for the combination of parents, doctors, and therapists who agree on a um, medical care approach for a child to not have that, which will mean that, for example, in Florida, that anyone's child can be open to a genital inspection by school officials. Right. Uh, that that awful. that is not that is not about protecting kids, and so mm -hmm. I think that that the book ban is not what people want, but the top line is what people want. And the fundamental thing that authoritarians need to do is to control everything. And that's what we're seeing. They're attempting to control everything by saying that it is about protecting kids. 
And as you said, we're all for protecting kids. And in Moms Rising's recent polling that we've commissioned, we've found that more than 80% of people oppose book bans, oppose attacks on trans kids and families, oppose being limited in what is happening with our own bodies in terms of us being able to decide. We are not on the same page with this vocal minority of people who, as you rightly said, are using something that we all do agree on, protect kids, to push forward something that many things that we don't agree on, which mm -hmm. is attacking communities, people, and causing harm. And you just did an investigated series, The Anti-Trans Hate Machine, A Plot Against Equality, and uncovered what's behind this vocal minority of people. Can you share a little bit about what you found? Well, I think what we found was something that was was and is and will be really chilling for quite some time. We found a vast apparatus of people, money, organizations, extreme religious ideology, politicians, um, as well as an entire media infrastructure that is pushing the idea that trans people are not worthy of equal humanity and that any allowance of trans kids to actually be trans um, is harmful. And that kind of combination of those two ideas um, has had a lot of success. And it's had a lot of success because it's had a tremendous amount of energy and a tremendous amount of, of money. And it's also had a lot of success because it's actually had a lot of time. That this is an issue that is flown under the radar screen that ever since around 2014, the Christian nationalist movement of extreme organizations that I've just mentioned, almost all of whom have some kind of connect connection to January 6th, by the way, um, as well as many of the politicians, um, have been sort of planning this for, for since around 2014. They've been looking for a way to have a conversation about trans kids that would allow them to usher in a range of horrible policies, including uh, family child separation, which is the newest set of laws that they have, which is if a parent is supportive of their trans kid in Texas, for example, the state can take the child away from the parents and put that kid in foster care because the state has labeled loving your trans kid as child abuse. This is or horrifying. Yep. Yeah, or it being used um, in Florida in custody cases um, um, where the state will transfer custody from one parent to another. And so you can see when you look under the hood that it's not at all about what they're saying that it is. Yeah. And that people are being duped, you know, just like I think, I mean, I personally think that Moms for Liberty is a response to Moms Rising and the success that they all that they saw that you had. Um, and the fact is that we know that Moms for Liberty is about the exact opposite of what their name is. And I think that we just see that throughout of what they're doing. And it's a pretty frightening um, apparatus. I mean, there's they're so much more to they're not for liberty. Yeah. And we had an independent investigation done and they are 52% not moms. <laughs> not even moms. I'm calling it mom washing at this point. And you raise such an important point. People don't want these policies, these restrictive, harmful, hateful policies, but they do need 
policy change in the form of paid family medical leave, child care, equitable health care. All of these things are wildly supported and widely supported by Democrats, Republicans, independents, libertarians, everybody across the country. And so, you know, they're tapping into something uh, which is a crisis in America with Mm -hmm. families and children needing more foundations to thrive and they're turning yeah. it upside down and pushing hate instead of pushing the real change that we need and so what is your advice to people who are listening like how do you envision the future of narrative power in the context of transgender lives how can parents families people support across the country what can we do to stop this hate and harm well, I think the first thing is don't be duped, right? Don't be duped by the pseudoscience. Don't be duped by Moms for Liberty. You know, uh, don't be duped by fourth wave now. You know, don't be duped, right? That's the first thing. Because anything that says I'm going to protect kids by restricting the parent, the ability of parents to love or the ability of those kids to be respected or the mandatory nature of schools um, being forced to provide, make sure that um, schools are safe for all of our kids, that anytime you hear anything like that, that you're being duped. Um, we know, for example, um, that the Alliance Defending Freedom has what they call um, an ambassador program where they are literally um, finding and paying local people to create um, a storm and local school boards around trans kids. It's a national program where they pay people to do this. So anytime that you see this in your local area, know that it's not local at all, that it's being disguised as local, but it's part of a highly coordinated campaign to distract and to dupe parents um, into doing the opposite of what parents want to be doing. Right. So that's the first thing. And the second part of that is that there's a political agenda. They're actually trying to take over school boards in order to enact conservative and extreme policies under the guise, again, of protecting kids. Yes. And so I think the thing that I would tell parents is don't be duped. The second thing I would say is to organize. Moms are great at organizing. Um, and thirdly, the thing that I would say is whenever this issue comes up in your local community, go to the school board meeting, call your local school board um, member if you can't make the meeting, um, you know, tell them, tweet about it, or I guess X about it during the school board meeting, and just say, this is not what I want. Because one of the things that they are betting on is that parents who don't want these policies are not going to show up. And that the only ones that are going to show up are the people who do. And so I think it really is, you know, as the name says, it's time. It's really an important thing for moms to rise, you know, for you to make your voice heard because it makes a huge difference. 150%. And I want to tell all the listeners out there that Moms Rising is active on the ground in places like Florida where Moms Against Liberty were founded. And we find that when we rise, when we raise our voices, when we come together on the ground, we win, even yeah. at the heart of where they were founded. So thank you so much, Amara Jones, who is with Translash for coming on. Everybody go to translash.org, sign up, support, stay involved, all the things. I hope we can have you on again. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your time with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your leadership, Amara Jones. Happy to come back and thank you so much.
We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Next up, we're talking with Upwardly Global about policies that need changing at the state and federal level so everyone can thrive, including immigrant families. We'll be back in just a moment. We're going to fight for love. with me, Kristen Ralphing Finer, powered by Moms Rising. We are joined by Gina Krauss-Billmore, president and CEO of Upwardly Global. Welcome, 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 and thank you for being on and lifting our entire globe. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Same. So when we're talking about Upwardly Global, can you give our listeners just sort of a foundation in what's happening and what are the primary policies, goals, movements happening in Upwardly Global right now? Yeah, so there are 2.2 million um, immigrants, refugees, and asylees in the United States who are un- or underemployed and hold college degrees. Um, many of these are asylees who are currently trying to come to the United States through the southern border, including Venezuelans, 62% of whom have a college degree. Um, many of these are individuals who have come in through recent evacuations such as in Ukraine or from Afghanistan. And yet these people start from scratch. They start from the bottom. They're not able to find skill aligned work. And what ends up happening is they work as rideshare drivers or stocking grocery shelves. And so at Upwardly Global, our message really is, is that you can start from where you left off and you can have a thriving career in the United States to support yourself and your family. That is really important. And one thing that people don't realize is the contributions of people coming into the United States are tremendous. We have a whole bunch of workforce shortages happening. Can you speak to how the workforce that you are lifting actually impacts in a positive way the United States economy and business environment? Yeah, so the reality is, is if we were able to get this 2.2 million people back into skill aligned work, they would be contributing $10 billion a year in tax revenue. So that's not 10 billion. That's not chump change. Um, I also want to say that many of these individuals are women. These are women who have fought tooth and nail in their home countries to get their degrees, to get their careers, and they come to the land of opportunity and they realize that actually not only do they face barriers because they're newcomers, but they also face barriers because they're women. Um, and so these are some of the challenges that our community faces, but we have, as you mentioned, huge labor market shortages right now. Um, and we have labor market shortages across industries. We have labor market shortages in healthcare. We have them in business logistics and operations. We have them in engineering. And so how are we thinking of tapping this untapped talent pool that creates a win-win for all of us and really creates shared prosperity for America? A hundred percent. So when we're looking at how do we do this, we see so many barriers to engagement and opportunity? What barriers need to be knocked down and how can our listeners help knock those barriers down? Yeah, so one of our barriers is career navigation. Like for a lot of people, it's really challenging to understand 
how does my um, how does my skills fit into the U.S. job market? What jobs do I qualify for? Do I need a relicense or recredential? Um, one of the things that we do is we create a mentorship program that also helps. Not only do our job seekers get to work with our coaches, who are professionalized oh, industry experts, but then they also get matched with a mentor, somebody that's in that industry that can help these individuals navigate. What is the industry lingo? What does the industry look like in the United States? What memberships should they have? Um, so that's one way. The other way is it's really hard for HR and recruiters to understand the value of a foreign credential. And so what ends up happening is, is not only do they not understand the value, but then if somebody has been out of the job market for two plus years, maybe because they had a child, maybe because they were in a refugee camp, they oftentimes throw that CV away. So at Upwardly Global, we are part of this larger movement in the United States, which is really saying we need to assess people based on skill, not based on pedigree. And we really need to remove the requirement to have a bachelor's degree or a master's degree when it's really not necessary. Um, and then I would say social networks. You know, 85% of jobs today are found through social networks. And many immigrant communities don't have access to that, but in particular, immigrant women. And that's because Immigrant women are time poor. Not only are they taking care of the household, their families, and trying to find work, but they have limited spaces where they can go and actually just meet with other women or meet with others. And so that really gives them a double ding in terms of their ability to meet others. And so we're really excited that our mentorship program also matches women to women. Um, so those are just a couple of things around what we can do. The last thing I'll say is, is we have some exciting news coming out of Illinois, which is we were able to help pass in coalition legislation that allows internationally trained doctors to work underneath a U.S. trained doctor for two years and then to become a U.S. licensed doctor. That means they don't have to go through the five to six year process to become a doctor again. And instead, they're working and they're able to help address the doctor shortages in this country. And this is particularly important because we have a wonderful colleague from Afghanistan named Suhaila, and she is the breadwinner, breadwinner for her eight family members. She was evacuated when Kabul fell. I actually met her on a U.S. military base at Fort Dix in New Jersey, and she was out of 126 medical students in Afghanistan in her program. 125 were men and one was a woman and that was Savela. She is a surgeon that's done over 1000 surgeries in a conflict zone. And that gives somebody like her a pathway to be contributing in a way that allows her to earn and um, get that license back. I love this. As you said, we have a national doctor shortage. Everybody who's on right now, if you have tried to make a doctor appointment, or try to get a new doctor or try to get in to see a specialist when you need it. You know, there are waiting lists all across the country. There are some areas in our country that are virtually impossible to get doctor's appointments. I will just share this own personal story. My daughter moved to a different section of the country, needed a new doctor. I called 30 doctor's offices to see if I could get her an appointment to get in with a new doctor and they all were not taking any new patients. So this isn't wow. just a doctor shortage that we see on paper or in the newspapers. This is real people. This is really real. How can we make that legislation that passed in Illinois national? 
Is there a proposal well, in Congress? I'm ready. Let's throw down. <laughs> well, the challenge, the challenge is, is the medical industry is legislated state by state. So we actually have to go state by state. Oh. But I will say, <laughs> I will say this, 20 other states are now looking to pass similar legislation. Oh, that's and it is a real race for talent because yeah. all states are struggling with medical professionals. And one of the messages we say is these shortages, these labor shortages, it's not a once in a moment thing in our country right now. This is yeah. like our new normal. And yeah. unless we start problem solving around how do we tap untapped talent? How do we welcome people into our communities so that we can find and address those labor shortages? We're all going to be struggling, not only now, but into the future. Yeah. Okay. So listeners, we just found one of many to-dos that you need to do. I know we give you a long to-do list each time we have a segment on the radio program. So thank you for persisting and enduring the long to-do list. This one is a good one. Your state legislature, we are hearing right now, I did not know this before, many of you may already know this, has the power to change how people are credentialed to get their medical licenses. If they have a license and training in another country, they can make legislation like Illinois just did to have a two-year basic mentoring program and then get licensed in the United States, go through the process in the US. This is spectacular. So you need to ask your state legislators, your state representatives and your state senators, please pass that in our state. That's huge. What's your advice on that? In terms of how to get it passed? Yeah. Um, I think it's really finding that one um, state representative who's willing to champion this and then asking them to set up a task committee to look into it and then put forward legislation for a vote and leaning into the fact that there's doctor shortages, leaning into the fact that other states are passing this and leaning into the fact that, you know, there are 165,000 internationally trained doctors in the United States today who are not working as physicians. And wow. are we going to be the state that's going to be left behind because other states are moving on this faster than we are, I think mm -hmm. is a huge message. That's huge. 165,000 internationally trained doctors in a nation where we have a doctor shortage and we are not yet having a process in all states for people to get credentialed. I'm so glad you're doing this work. Are there other policies like that that we can help support? <laughs> well, you know, another big one right now for us is the Afghan Adjustment Act. So 90,000 Afghans have been evacuated from Afghanistan because of the service that they provided to the U.S. government and the U.S. military. These are people who are in danger of their lives under the Taliban. And many of these are women who have been um, teachers, who have been activists, who have been parliamentarians or judges. And so we have 18,000 of these women in the United States today. We have 90,000 Afghans in the United States today. Half of those are children. And yet they may not be able to stay because we have not yet passed an Afghan Adjustment Act. That means these individuals are here on a temporary visa status, does allow them to stay and work, but it expires every two years. And unless Congress acts, these individuals will not have a permanent pathway to citizenship, a way to really establish roots and create a new home in the United States and not have to constantly juggle the struggle of renewing their, their work authorization every two years if they're lucky enough that their visa category is extended. Um, I met this wonderful woman. Uh, she's from Afghanistan. She worked in, in the parliament. She was working um, in human resources. She escaped um on her own 
driving to the driving in a taxi to the airport, getting in. And she was able to, we were able to help her get a job with a nonprofit. Um, but she has had to step away from that job because she's in the process of getting her work authorization renewed. And there's huge backlogs around this. And so Afghan Adjustment Act, it is a precedent that's been set. We've done passed this with the Vietnamese when they came over. We've passed this with the Cubans when they came over. So there's a precedent for this. And so that's something we're really pushing. Okay, everybody call your member of Congress and say pass the Afghan Adjustment Act ASAP. Now, you may be looking in the newspaper and thinking, Congress? Not sure I should call them. (laughs) They're having a little bit of Republican leadership chaos in the House. By a little bit, I mean a lot of it. But don't give up. There are still solid congressional legislators working day in and day out. And so you should still call and say, pass the Afghan Adjustment Act. And, you know, call your member of Congress, no matter what party they're in, um, and remind them that we need to do the work to make America work for us. Um, And that includes passing the Afghan Adjustment Act. Thank you for bringing that up. What gives you hope? We have one last minute. And I just want to, you know, give a little time for you to share what brings you hope, what keeps you going, what keeps you fighting for these policy changes, which are so important and for people. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is really, it's my mom. My mom um, immigrated to the United States through an arranged marriage and she left that relationship. It was an abusive relationship. And she ended up raising myself and my three sisters on her own, working three jobs, three low wage jobs, even though she had a master's degree from her home country. And I just really think if I I could save my mom um, was something I always wished to be able to do as a child. And I wasn't able to because I was a kid, but now I'm an adult and I have an opportunity to like make the pathway better for others. And so that motivates me. Um, my kids motivate me. Um, but also, you know, just seeing how many Americans have stepped up in this past couple of years to open their doors to welcome refugees into their homes. We've had 300,000 Americans raise their hand and say, I want to sponsor a refugee and let I will take care of them for the first few years of their lives so that they can be set up for success in this country. That gives me hope. That's hugely hopeful. Well, thank you so much for being on for all you do. Gina Krauss-Vilmar with Upwardly Global. Everybody, please support Upwardly Global. Check them out online. Check them out on Twitter. Check them out everywhere and stay involved in support. And thank you again. Thank you. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for tuning in as we tackle the top topics facing our nation in a way that requires the most boring disclaimer in the history of the planet Earth. Here goes. Views expressed on this show are those of the individual speakers and should not be attributed to Moms Rising, to this station, or to any news or social media service that may disseminate a recording of this show to the public or to any segment of the public. Boom, we'll catch you next week. We're gonna fight for love.